This show is made possible by listeners just like you. For details on our membership program or individual donations, please visit the website at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman program, The Young Turks, This American Life, Ring of Fire, Media Matters, and Counterspin. The bonus clip today for our iPhone app users is another great clip from Tom Hartman. To begin with, I want to tie together three uh, uh, events, three three things here, if I if I may, just very quickly. And uh, and the guy to do it is uh, Jeff Charlotte. Jeff Charlotte's on the phone with us. His website, Jeff Charlotte, S H A R L E T dot com. Jeff, uh, the author of of course, uh, contributing editor of Harper's and Rolling Stone, author of the uh, New York Times bestseller, The Family: The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power. Jeff, uh, welcome back to our program. Hey, Tom. Great to be here. Great to have you with us. Here, there's. Let me just lay these three things out really quickly. Our question, my question for this hour is: Are religious cults killing democracy the same as they're killing people? What got me started on this is that this week there's going to be a verdict in a case here in Oregon, where a family denied medical care to two of their children who both died because they were members of a religious cult that believed in only faith healing, and uh, and in. In fact, there's a, a cemetery here uh, for you know that includes members of this family. There's over 20 bodies that have that, you know. Uh, there's just been a whole bunch of deaths in this one little cult here. Uh, number one. Number two, we've got the Ugandan kill the gays bill. Uh, the 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 apparently Hillary Clinton had a conversation with the president with Museveni of Uganda, and uh, they're not going to be pushing it quite so hard. And the head, the organizer, of that's been disinvited from the National Prayer Breakfast, which brings me to number three, which is, I think, the crux of the whole thing, and that is that Thursday, the National Prayer Breakfast is happening in Washington, D.C., which is being sponsored, has been sponsored for 40 years by this group that you refer to as the family. They call themselves the Fellowship, um, and, and it's a demonstration of the political power of another religious cult. And I'm, I want to bring all these together because I see these religious cults as being extremely toxic and, by the way, taxpayer-supported. So, Jeff, let's start out with the National Prayer Breakfast on Thursday. Tell us what this is and what's going on with this. Well, the National Prayer Breakfast was actually organized uh, first time back in 1953 with the express purpose of consecration, consecrating the nation's leadership to Jesus Christ. And it's continued ever since, paid for. It's a private sectarian event. Uh, in fact, one of the organizers just come forth to say that they're not obliged to uh, provide any transparency because it is this private event. Uh, recent documents say uh, anything can happen, even the Koran can be read. They invited uh, Prince Bandar, the, the Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabian ambassador, once to speak. Said, But Jesus is there. He is infiltrating the world. That's the event which they have managed to give a veneer of official government endorsement to. Now, don't the invitations go out on official government letterhead? Congressional letterhead, uh, URSVP, if you're a reporter through the White House, um, and at the same Isn't time... Isn't that a violation of the separation of church and state? Yeah, and in fact, the first president to attend thought so, too, uh, Dwight Eisenhower. You know, the family today is fond of saying that Eisenhower started this. Eisenhower didn't start it. He resisted it almost to the end, but he owed, ele he owed electoral campaign favors, and he said, okay, I'll go. I just hope this doesn't become a tradition. It didn't become a tradition for Eisenhower. He, he couldn't stand it, but it did become a tradition for his vice president, Richard Nixon, who thought right. this was a terrific thing, and uh, unfortunately, every president since is gone. Yeah. 
and and apparently gone enthusiastically. Well, of course. I mean, who's going to come out and say they're against prayer? And and you know, to be fair, most of them don't understand the the history of the organization uh, uh, behind this. Most of them, for instance, don't understand uh, that it's not just that event on Thursday, but there's a whole week long of sort of uh, lobbying-like events. So, for instance. Uh, uh, on Wednesday, there will be an African uh, prayer breakfast for leaders from Africa. Senator James Inhofe, uh, the far-right-wing Republican from Oklahoma, has a sort of quasi-veto power over that event. And I want to correct a couple things, um, uh, because they put out there the idea that Bahati, David Bahati, the Ugandan member of parliament who proposes this... Uh, kill, kill the gays, Bill. Yeah, uh, was disinvited. Uh, I've been speaking with David Bahati regularly, and uh, he is very clear that he was not disinvited. That hmm. He wasn't uh, is he coming to the United States? He's not coming because, as he put it, he doesn't want to embarrass his friends here. Uh, um, he doesn't. He says he says the gays control America, and uh, so he. Yeah, right. And Senator Inhofe is 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 terrified of the gays. And, yeah. Um, well, let's see. Last week it was the Jews. This week it's the gays. Uh, we'll you know. be next week. Yeah, right. Everyone gets a turn. Everyone gets there. You one go. Week to, to rule America. Oh man, um, it, it's it, well, you know, I, you know, I say that lightly, and you do too. But that kind of thinking is what led to the Holocaust, and that kind of thinking is what is is one of the reasons why uh, gay teenagers have the highest suicide rate in the nation, and and that kind of thinking could lead to the to the murder, the legal government-sanctioned murder of gays in Uganda, and at this very moment leads to the gay to the to the to the the government-sanctioned murder of gays in countries like Saudi Arabia and Iran, and so uh, yeah, you know, I, I I really shouldn't make a joke of it. No, this is serious stuff. What's going on in Uganda is potentially much more devastating than the the hateful anti-gay bills in, in countries like Saudi Arabia. They're talking about a much more widespread uh, campaign in a country with a history of genocide. And mm. now that this movement has spread to Rwanda and Burundi, two neighboring countries also. With with history of genocide, um, and it's important to recon, uh, recognize that the American members of the family have come out against the bill, but the issue is too little too late. They've empowered these Ugandan uh, members. David Bahati says, I am a member of the family. He says, I'm the secretary of the Ugandan branch. They've empowered them, and they frankly haven't held them accountable, and, and, and they use Things like President Obama showing up at the National Prayer Breakfast to say, hey, we're a legitimate uh, organization, even though we're not going to tell you anything about what we're doing. If they would just come clean, um, just come out in the public square. What is what is the association? We're talking with Jeff Charlotte, author of The Family, jeffcharlotte.com, his website. Jeff, what is the association be between President Museveni of Uganda and the family? It's one of the deepest they have. Uh, it goes back to 1986 when he took power by coup. Uh, the family, uh, the family has gone public in, in, in effect this fall, and, and they've been very clear in response to my book and the reporting I've uh, been doing with Rachel Maddow. Um, and they they talk about reaching out to Museveni in 1986. He's the longest serving dictator in East Africa. Right. Uh, so they're so they're reaching out to. US we have we have just a half a minute left, Jeff. Pardon pardon me for trying to move this along really quickly, but but how is that connected? Their their connection to Museveni and Uganda. How is that connected to, to the, the living hell that's going on in Somalia? 
in Somalia is a country where they have an even deeper relationship. They were the ones who facilitated the massive arms up under the former dictator, yeah, Sadbari. In fact, it was Senator Chuck Grassley who was going over there. This is in their documents in the 1980s and uh, helping them arrange for meetings with U.S. defense contractors, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He used that weaponry to... So here we have this war. Christian group, the family, that's facilitating wars and murders of, of civilians? They would say they had the best of intentions, but uh, we all know uh, what the road to hell is paved with. I wake up every morning and I'm stepping on the floor. I wake up every morning and I'm stepping out the door. I got faith in the sky, faith in the one, faith in the people rocking underneath the sun. Because every bit of land is a holy land and every drop of water is a holy water. And every single child is a son or a daughter of the one earth mama and the one earth papa. So don't tell a man that he can't come here because he got brown eyes and a wavy kind of hair. Because she prays a little different to a God up there You say you're a Christian cause God made you You say you're a Muslim cause God made you You say you're a Hindu and the next man a Jew Then we all kill each other cause God told us to Now hello, 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 hello Bonjour, bonjour Catholics are upset because they feel that the movie is sending the message That people should worship nature rather than worship God now, you see, that's, that's the thing with Catholics. They, they flip me out, man. I, I feel bad for them because they really think that they're battling these different things. Like, they think they're battling Harry Potter. They, they view that as competition. Lord of the Rings is other competition. I don't believe in witchcraft and Harry Potter and the elves and the dwarves and Lord of the Rings, right? And, and apparently they view respecting nature as competition to religion. Mm -hmm. Well, there's nothing wrong with respecting nature, and if you think that's your competition, I don't know, I guess you're going to lose, because nature's always going to be nature, and I should hope that we're going to respect it at some point. I mean, if you're battling against facts, and you're battling against nature and things as they are, that's a losing battle for you in the long run, but I wouldn't pick my battles that way. Now, speaking philosophically or from a religious point of view, I happen to be agnostic, right? Mm -hmm. I don't view nature as a competing you know, thing, why would I? Okay, and if nature can go in a lot of different ways, you can say, hey, you know what, uh, in nature there's a lot of ram randomness, or there's mutations, or there's evolution, but there's also order. Two plus two equals four. E equals MC squared, not MC cubed. There's order, you can't fight nature, and what the decisions you make off that, or the conclusions you make off that is a different matter, right? Uh, but I think you clown yourself when you say, oh, I don't know about this nature thing. Let's go with our voodoo instead. You're only hurting yourself. Right. No, I agree. Why are they so worried about movies spreading propaganda? There's been a ton of movies that spread Catholic and Christian propaganda. That's just the way it is. Just mm -hmm. live with it. Why are you so worried? Like, why are you overanalyzing every single movie? Just believe in what you want to believe in. Have faith in your own religion and screw off. <laughs> and screw up. Like, see, I don't, I honestly, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't care what your religion is. I don't care what JR's religion is. All I know are what my beliefs are, and that's all that matters to me, okay? I'm not going to live my life in this paranoid fear, okay, where I'm worried about what your beliefs are. I don't give a shit. <laughs> God bless you for that, ironically. Okay, but having said that, I know why they're, they're concerned about mm -hmm. it. And I think that their concern is somewhat legitimate, actually, and I'll tell you why. Because... Look, you're convinced of this, and I'm convinced of that, and the Pope is convinced of that the Catholicism is right, I think. Right? Uh, but they're worried about the middle ground. 
-hmm. uh, they were worried about winning hearts and minds. And movies, I mean, that especially Avatar, seen by 1.3 billion, or it's brought in 1.3 billion dollars so far. Okay, it's seen by a lot of people across the world. That does set the culture. Okay, now and once the culture is set, it's hard to overcome. Mm -hmm. So I know why they battle against it. And I know you're right that no, it, it makes don't. them seem silly. There's no question. Mm -hmm. I mean, when they uh, you know go off in a you know little casting spell you know battle between Dumbledore and and the Pope, it's a lose lose for them. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> okay, but having said that, man, people are going to get influenced by Avatar. And In what way? Like they're going to watch Avatar and they're going to start talking to trees? I mean, what, what's your point? <laughs> I don't think so, but some probably will. <laughs> but no, you know, final thought on it is this. Like, I hear you, and I don't think they're going to get influenced in that way. I don't think, right? But they will be influenced in some ways that I find positive in this case. I think a lot of people look at that view of movie and go, yeah, you know what? Corporations, they do only care about the money, right? And they care about getting whatever it is, unobtainium. Oh, God, what a clunky, terrible word that was to use in the movie. Or oil in the real world, et cetera. And it makes them think, hey, you know, because there's a lot of propaganda in America mm -hmm. that corporate America is awesome, right? It's like the greatest gift of, you know, God to mankind. Mm -hmm. And the movie makes you think, nah, I'm not so sure that's true. And the reality is, of course, it's not true at all. Uh, that there are upsides and downsides to corporate America. So that's why it can be influential. I'm hoping in a good way. And that's why the Vatican is scared. There was a flyer taped to the wall by the water fountain in the English department at Penn State this week. Uh, it says raw, and then underneath it in bigger letters, it says sex. Then underneath that, everything you need to know. And under that, a website, rawsexpsu.org. And then under that, an address and time for a meeting of some sort. And then under that, at the very bottom, in teeny-weeny little type, you have to look very closely, it says... Hosted by Orthodox Christian Fellowship, a ministry of Holy Trinity Orthodox Church. This wire, yes, is a not very disguised bait and switch for Jesus. Which brings us to the next act of our show, Act 2, Raw Sex, in which uh, there will be no sex, but there will be a bunch of Jesus. One of our contributors, Dave Dickerson, uh, was raised as an evangelical, and he says baiting and switching was just taken as a given. After all, being an evangelical comes with a huge responsibility to bring non-believers to God. You have to. God, you know, Jesus actually says, go out into all the world and preach the gospel. And at the same time, we're also told, and they're going to hate you just like they hated me. And so you have this kind of biblical imperative to, you know, spread the word to people who don't want to hear it. 
And uh, so, and you know, Paul at one point says, be as innocent as doves and as wise as serpents. And so, you know, a little bit of trickery to sort of like help the, help the medicine go down seems like a reasonable thing to do. So what would you do? <clears throat> well, when I um, was with uh, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, who was famous uh, for doing a lot of these things, one time we went out to California. I was, you know, originally in Tucson. And um, we went up to people on the beach and said, hey, we're going to have, like, this luau party tonight. You know, come. We had, like, flyers to hand out. And, and it said, you know, there's going to be music and food and drinks. It said drinks. You know, it didn't say, like, non-alcoholic drinks. It just said drinks. Uh, and uh, it was almost shameless because, of course, the, the, the women who would go out, this was, you know, spring break. They were in bikinis and they were very attractive. And uh, so we could see, like, you know, they, they would go up to guys. And, of course, the guys would take the flyer and they were going to go to, go to this luau. Um, and there was no real tip-off. It didn't say, you know, Campus Crusade for Christ at the bottom or anything like that. Right. And, uh, you know, when we actually had the the, the, the actual, you know, presentation, I, you know... Wait, wait, the presentation, uh, you mean the, the, the luau? Yes, the so, luau, of course, was this, was a kind of a, a, a skit show. You you had the, you know, the Diet Coke and whatever, uh, and the pretzels, but, uh, and the, the entertainment was... Uh, oh, you know, they would like lip sync to Journey. Uh, there was like a like an air guitar contest. It was, it was you know silly stuff that was wholesome and not at all like the wet T-shirt contest stuff they were maybe expecting. Right. And then every two or three episodes, someone would come out and say, you know, I just want to point out that Jesus Christ has made a huge difference in my life. And if you have any you know questions about that, uh, you know, you can talk to some people over here, and we've got literature, blah blah blah. And now you know back to your program. And uh, as this happened, after about the second or third of these sort of commercial interruptions, I could see, you know, I mean, I was cringing anyway. I knew this was, you know, the wrong way to go. But you could see people looking at each other like guys would go, oh, like they would look around and you could see them sort of thinking, these women are not on the market. You know, this is like the almost exact opposite of what we were promised (laughs) You know, and um, and so you would see this a lot, and it, you would always feel kind of strange about it. Right, right. I, I felt like there must be something kind of inherently flawed with the system. Uh, uh, I got I got trained once in uh, doing something, and this is another uh, classic, uh, to do a survey, a spiritual survey of people to walk up and say, "Hey, we're doing a survey of uh, religious uh, attitudes. Campus, so do you believe in God? And you know, what sort of God do you believe in? And that kind of thing." And we would just ask a series of questions that would eventually lead them to, "By the way, do you belong to a church? Hey, would you like to join ours? And, you know, that kind of thing." Mm-hmm. And uh, we got put into pairs. And uh, this friend of mine and I, you know, started at one end of the campus. And while we were walking down this thing, I had all these ideas in my head thinking, okay, what if they ask, like, who's sponsoring the survey? Or, you know, what statistical model are you using? You know, we were in college <laughs> enough to know that, you know, there, there's a survey and then there's a survey, you know, that, and, and, you know, yeah. some, we hit a statistics major, we're in trouble. And, um, and we, you know, uh, one woman came by and my friend said, I don't know, she looks kind of busy or angry, so let's avoid that. And, and you know, and this other guy came by and he said, I don't know, he doesn't seem right. And we kept talking each other out of, confronting people, you know, like halfway down the campus, and finally we just looked at each other and said, you know, we just can't do this, can we? But is the thing that bothered you the fact that you're going to have to walk up to strangers, or is the thing that bothered you that you were walking up to strangers under a false pretense? Oh, it was, um, well, it was both, but, but, you know, clearly the false pretense was supposed to make it easier. It was supposed to give us cover so that we didn't seem religious, 
and it wasn't fooling us. So it seemed both false and uh, didn't really help. There's a big debate among evangelicals about how to better reach out to non-believers. You'll find shelves of books on this at Christian bookstores. One of the evangelicals who's trying to change uh, some of the old tactics is a guy named Jim Henderson, and he's tried all kinds of things to reach non-believers. When a guy named um, Hemant Mehta offered his own soul for sale on eBay to the highest bidder, it was Jim Henderson who won the auction with a $504 bid, which is, you know, cheap for a soul. And what he did with that money was he simply asked Mehta to attend a few churches with him and tell him what was persuasive and what put him off. This project led to a book. Henderson has another book called Evangelism Without Additives. He says in his decades as a pastor trying to convert people, he noticed that sinners like Jesus, but they don't like Jesus's people, which led Henderson to completely rethink how he was approaching nonbelievers. It was not an epiphany. It dawned on me slowly that um, I was tired of feeling bad. I was tired of thinking about you as a project instead of you as a person. Um, and so I didn't like that. And then I also noticed that in spite of all the preaching I did about this to get other people to do it, they just wouldn't do it. I mean, they just Christians, ordinary Christians vote with their feet and they just do not participate in these programs. In the uh, programs to evangelize, you mean? They wouldn't evangelize. Yeah. I mean, you can push them for a few days, like a diet or something like that. And then it's like, are we done with this now? Can we go back to our normal life of thinking about ourselves? Mm-hmm. Uh, so usually it doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for the same reasons. It doesn't work for normal humans. We don't like being pitched. We don't like being treated that way. I don't like being invited to a party to kibitz and chat and then find out you have a pitch you want to give me. Yeah, yeah. You know, we can smell a cell coming. And by the way, most of the most of the ways you observe evangelism being done as it's being marketed are ineffective. The large rallies, all that stuff. The statistics are just abysmal about the number of converts that actually stick. It does not result in what the church wants. The church wants disciples. The church wants Jesus actually didn't say go out and make converts. He said go make disciples, which is a completely different project. Hmm. So. So there's no, the the founder of our movement, you know, uh, Jesus, did not model this behavior. He never had to, you know, uh, lower himself to a bait and switch. Uh, And so this has been an adoption of sort of American consumerism that we've adopted as a church. And it's really largely based on sales, uh, the way of getting people to join I mean, quite frankly, I want people to follow Jesus. I believe Jesus is God and all that stuff, you know, but... I'm completely done with, you know, the whole evangelism as a sales model deal. I'm done with it. So walk me through um, what it is that you're advocating. You have this thing called doable evangelism, evangelism that actually people, normal people can do without feeling weird about it. Okay, so so give me me the steps of it. Like, what, what do I do if I want to do it? Doable evangelism does not concern itself with converting people. It's not about sales. It's about connecting. So the, the, the paradigm is about connecting with people. The way we connect, there's three what we call spiritual practices for connecting with people. Number one, notice people. You know, practice the art of noticing. Sit and watch. Sit in the mall and watch people go by and ask yourself, I wonder what's going on with that person. Just just reflect. The second one is pray for people behind their backs. You know, Christians like to pray for people, and we believe prayer matters. So pray for them behind their backs, unauthorized prayers. You don't need their permission. You can pray. But pray for these people. It's fine. You know, it's not going to hurt them. It's not going to hurt you. Maybe something good will happen. Who knows? The third thing is, if you, is to go to them and 
go to someone and actually listen. And the way you listen, you, you say something like, how are you? You know, and then you listen. And the person will be amazed when you don't interrupt them with your own story of how you are not doing yourself. So. So, so you would send people out. You say, I'm go- I want mm-hmm. you to listen to people. I want you to notice people. And yeah. then does this work in, in bringing people to Jesus? Or is that just like the first step? <laughs> so that's a, that's a question, of course, Christians ask us. They want to know about numbers and results. And, um, and but I, I feel say, like that's a fair that, question because you're saying like, well, uh-huh. this is this is a kind of doable evangelism. Okay, uh-huh. so all right, uh-huh. I can go out, I can listen to people. That part I can do. Uh, uh-huh. So, so well, where's the part where they come to Jesus? Um, you have to keep in mind our mission, our goal is to not on the, to get converts. Our goal is to get Christians out connecting with non-Christians. Hmm. Our goal is to get Christians learning how not to be jerks. Our goal is to help Christians learn to be normal. And what happens over a period of time is they start befriending people and they get in people's social circles. And yes, naturally, just like if you were interested in something and I knew you from some length of time, it, it, the likelihood of me going to the school that you're recommending, buying the car you recommended, increases because we're in proximity to each other. The way it happens is through relationships. That's how human beings actually change when you and I like each other. Like My saying is when people like each other, the rules change. Is it possible that, that your tactic just leads to nothing? Like, like I think about uh, my own circle of friends, and, and for whatever reasons now, I have a bunch of friends. My wife and I have a bunch of friends who are very devout religious people. And mm-hmm. we hang out with them, and, you know, we share our lives with them. But they are n- no influence at all in pulling us towards Christianity, away from our staunch atheism, and vice versa. That would be what my ideological enemies within evangelicalism would accuse me of, uh, that that this will lead to nothing. And so the alternative is for me then to imagine your social circle. What are your alternatives then to begin to uh, intentionally try and persuade each other? You know, I, I have this one chance to try and get Ira Glass saved. So here I go, you know, and then. What happens as a result of that typically is that that's the end of our relationship and uh, we go our separate ways. And so now I have zero influence in your life and I'm not going to be able to be influenced by you as well. When you describe it, and and I'm not saying this to be critical, I'm just observing, um, what you're replacing bait and switch with is um, it's all bait. And then, and then there's no switch at all. Uh, honestly, you're just assuming that at some point, like, oh, something will happen and maybe it'll be good. And hopefully it'll be yeah. good, right? Because the bait was pretty yeah. good. And so let's yeah. just go with that. Yeah, I could, that, that, I'm not, that doesn't offend me in the least. I kind of like that all bait, no switch. I, I might use that. Um, I admit I could be wrong. Maybe I'm living in a delusion or whatever, but this is one that I prefer over the alternatives. Um, and I'm happy with that. Our, again, our goal is to get Christians engaged in the process. We're not concerned about results. The average amount of time it takes to be a Christian is about, before you actually make a decision, is about four years. So I'm much more concerned about the starting line of faith. Why don't we try and get them across the starting line instead of the finish line? You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestofleft.com and use our Amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. 
When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. There's no question that the religious right is one of the most powerful political movements in the United States today. Indeed, they've virtually taken over the Republican Party. Because of this, the GOP has become in many ways irrelevant to our national political landscape. Joining me now to talk about how this has happened is Max Blumenthal, the author of a new book called Republican Gomorrah. Welcome to the show, Max. Great to be here. Max, you talk about the gravities of authoritarianism, and you talk about Eric Fromm, who, of course, was the great uh, 20th century philosopher who, uh, who described the evolution of authoritarian societies, particularly focusing on the right wing in Germany. And, he draw, and you draw many parallels to what's happening in the United States today. Is that uh, is 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 that comparison to uh, to uh, early twentieth century Nazism? Is that a legitimate comparison to what's happened to the Republican Party? Well, I, I don't actually make that comparison explicitly. This is um, you know what happened and why I came across from. Um, I'd been covering the Christian right for six years and watched them gradually take over the Republican Party and reach the mountaintop with George W. Bush. Um, and I was covering this movement, you know, in a really on an intimate basis, meeting its followers and leaders, and they would tell me, um, confess to me unprompted that they had had, um, many of them had had these terrible personal crises in their past that they sought to transcend um, by joining this authoritarian movement, by leaving secular society, and thereby leaving themselves and doing what God wanted them to do. And I found this book by Eric Fromm called Escape from Freedom, um, which articulated what I was seeing on the Christian right. He wrote this book after fleeing Nazi Germany in 1941, and obviously it was heavily influenced by his experience there. But what the book was was a warning to Americans about the peril of authoritarianism in a democratic society. And what Fromm said was that those who are willing to give up their personal freedom and who can't handle the pressures of freedom in an open society will inevitably form authoritarian structures and follow authoritarian leaders. And I found that to be um, prescient about the rise of the Christian right, a movement populated by people who have given up their freedom for the um, medication that authoritarianism provided to their anxiety. One of the things that Fromm says that you also point out is that these authoritarian movements are by their nature destined for destructive behavior. Absolutely. I mean, if you if you look at it, if you look at the personal as political, and then look at the personal writ large, a movement populated by people who have sought what Fromm calls the neurotic solution. In other words, they've sought a solution by externalizing their problems and following an authoritarian leader instead of dealing with the, the genuine source of their problems inside the self. Um, they inevitably head towards destruction. Just look at Ted Haggard and so many of the um, closeted homosexuals in the Christian right who've sought to uh, suppress their homosexual desires through a homophobic movement and the religion, the religious strictures it provides. And, of course, um, their desires only metastasize and kind of roil inside themselves until they explode into the open in really bizarre ways. So a movement filled with these people is naturally 
that, that has taken over one of the two major parties in the United States is naturally going to throw that party into conflict and lead that party into destruction. I think what we just saw in New York's 23rd district is a perfect example of that. Well, let's talk about one of the characters uh, that is really central to this movement, um, which, who you talk about a lot in this book, is Mr. Dobson. Yeah, uh, who, who parades as Dr. Dobson, Dr. James Dobson. He uh, just actually retired from Focus on the Family, the largest and most pow powerful group of the Christian right, and from his radio show, which is one of the top five radio shows in the country. But you know, I wrote about him because he cultivated the sensibility that defines this movement. He's not a religious leader. He's not a theologian, but he leads a religious movement as a child psychologist. And the source of his influence is a little book called Dare to Discipline that an evangelical au pair left uh, for my parents after taking care of me for a year when I was 10 years old. And the book is actually a manual for um, child abuse, for de deliberate um, assaulting of children. What Dobson wanted to do, writing this book in 1970, is to turn back the counterculture and produce a new generation of children who respected God and authority. In other words, a new authoritarian, radical conservative generation. And the way to do that, he thought, was to apply corporal punishment, to hit them with belts, and to foster what Eric Fromm called um, the sadomasochistic tendency. Fromm wasn't talking about, you know, the sexual kink of sadomasochism. He was talking about um, what he called the essential characteristic of the authoritarian personality, someone who from an early age is used to um, receiving violence from authority figures and becomes sadistic in that they um, yearn to beat down uh, those who they perceive as weaker than them or see as deviants, like homosexuals, Jews, minorities, foreigners, and the poor. And at the same time, they're masochistic in that they have this urge to bow down before strong authority figures like Dobson or like George W. Bush, who has always you know, said, I don't do nuance, always spoke with certainty, or the macho Jesus character of Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. So Dobson understood that the way to conduct politics is through psychology, um, just, as, just as Frum did, but he came at it from a totally opposite angle. And it turned out that he was quite successful. This is why he became the most powerful leader of the Christian right, because all of these people had been raised according to his techniques. You know, I had to read Frum when I was in college, and at the same time I was taking a course um, on, on sociobiology that was taught by some of the greatest biological thinkers at that time. And it struck me at that time the parallels between uh, the kind of tribalistic, atavistic, uh, tribalistic million and a half years that human beings had spent wandering around in small tribal groups um, that were led by um, masculine patriarchs that were that um, that made women uh, uh, objects or or possessions that regarded outsiders as less than human and and people that uh, who who you, if you were in a part of the inside group could be killed and that just looked for an authoritarian ideology and figure to lead them. And is this, is this in some ways, you know, what we're seeing, this, a kind of tribalism, like the, the default setting of our species? Well, I haven't looked at it through the prism of um, 
evolutionary psychology, um, but I think there is an argument to be made. If you, if, if you look at the way that the, the Republican Party's um, grassroots, um, the movement that I describe in my book, views the future, they view it with disdain and fear, and uh, change to them causes uh, you know, disruption and dislocation, even if it's a, a change that mainstream society welcomes. Eric Fromm says that the authoritarian character worships the past and that the miracle of creation is outside his range of experience. And so you see that every time there's an election, the Republican uh, uh, candidate, when he's playing to the base, will invoke the way it once was, mourning in America and, and, and tradition. And he, so they define themselves negatively against the future and yearn for the way it once was, although it's sort of a mystical, a mystical vision of the past that I think harkens back to the tribalism you refer to. It's why they're so terrified of Barack Obama, because he represents giant uh, seismic cultural shift and why they've gone so crazy since he's been elected, I think. It's a nostalgia for an America or a past that never really existed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and they're afraid to say that it is also a past in which... Uh, you know, segregation was, um, you know, the the law of the land when boys wore pants and girls wore skirts and the homosexual was thrown in the locker and humiliated. That's sort of what they're, are, they're, they're yearning for, but they just call it mourning in America. Fox News' lead conspiracy theorist Glenn Beck launches his latest crusade against social justice, a term he believes to be code language for communism and is now infecting all faiths and religions. Social justice and economic justice are code words. The rallying cry on both the communist front and the fascist front. And if we don't get off the social justice, economic justice bandwagon, you are in grave danger all of our faiths my faith your faith whatever your church is this is infecting all of them it is a perversion of the gospel and every member of every church should be concerned i pray glenn beck may just be overreacting you are the Right now I'm talking with the author, Max Blumenthal, about how the religious right has hijacked the grand old party and driven moderates to the brink of extinction. You know, um, you talk about the destruction of the Republican Party, but um, in Germany, in the end, the Nazis, the, these crazy right-wing authoritarian um, uh, lunatics actually took power. And uh, if you look at Fox News, if you look at the infrastructure that they have in this country on talk radio, the communications infrastructure, the communications infrastructure that they have on um, uh, on the networks, how you know the networks essentially have become an echo chamber for talk radio and for Fox News. And their alliance with the large corporations in this country 
who um, who's bidding essentially they do they become foot soldiers for Wall Street, even though Wall Street is destroying them and causing the very disruption that you described that 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 caused them to seek an authoritarian universe. Um, couldn't the same thing happen here? I mean, it doesn't look like the GOP is really dying. It looks like, in many ways, um, these alliances are are uh, have the potential to to thrive in the future, and to do great destruction to our country and to our democracy. Well, um, there's just as much corporate money on the Democratic side. I think Goldman Sachs donates more heavily to the Democratic side of the aisle, and the largest uh, recipient was. Chris Dodd, Barack Obama took over 250000 from Goldman Sachs and has continued um, to do their bidding in the White House. So I'm, I don't, but there's always been the distinction between the industries that relied on paper and the manufacturing industries who donated to the Republicans. But what I discuss in my book is the more personal alliance between uh, corporations, especially in the defense industry, and who have relationships with the Pentagon and the Christian right. For example, um, Edgar Prince, the car parts manufacturer from Michigan, uh, was uh, had a heart attack when in in his 70s and was converted by James Dobson, who converted so many um, people in the corporate world um, to born again Christianity. And Prince became jo- James Dobson's um, one of his top financiers, and also was one of the uh, was one of the key financiers of Proposition 8 in California um, through his his wife. Prince has died, and his son, Edgar Prince's son, is Eric Prince, who is the CEO of Blackwater, the controversial mercenary firm, which is responsible for um, a lot of uh, accused war crimes, crimes against humanity in Iraq. And my friend Jeremy Scahill revealed through his sources in Blackwater um, that uh, Eric Prince believed that he was on a mission from God and that he was carrying out a biblical crusade in Iraq through Blackwater. So this is the danger. I think the links between the Christian right and corporations are much more intimate than we know. In fact, the former CEO of Northrop Grumman, one of the top uh, arms manufacturers, is now the um, chairman of Focus on the Family and has replaced James Dobson there. Um, Focus on the Family strategically located in Colorado Springs, one of the centers of arms and defense manufacturing. And Focus on the Family employees take target practice at the Air Force Academy. So um, I focus on the personal links in my book, which I think are are pretty dangerous. And the Christian right has definitely thrived off of corporate money. So what's the future of this movement? Is there is there you know rather than asking, have they destroyed the Republican Party? My question would be, how do we stop them from destroying our country? Well, I mean, the Republican Party shows that it can still win. We just saw Bob McDonnell, a uh, cadre of Pat Robertson. Uh, who is mentored by Pat Robertson, win the governorship in Virginia by pretending to be a suburban moderate and by running against a Democrat who could barely form a sentence and looked like he just stepped off the set of Mayberry. Um, so they were a little lucky there. Um, so they, they, they can still win elections and mobilize a lot of resentment against Barack Obama. And they are, as you said, very dangerous as an opposition movement. However, I think the chances of them being able to hold national power are slim what we saw in New York 23rd, where Sarah Palin and the teabaggers endorsed an unknown third-party candidate against a popular Republican, allowing a Democrat to win there for the first um, time in 100 years, I think is the future of the party. Um, if you look at Olympia Snow, one of the last moderate Republican senators, 
and her numbers in Maine, uh, if they run a monkey against her, the monkey will win because the Republican Party has been so thoroughly subsumed and overrun by the Christian right. Um, so the big tent party of Dwight Eisenhower is now the, uh, one, the one-ring circus of Sarah Palin. And the 2010 midterms and the 2012 Republican presidential primary will be conducted in Palin's shadow whether she runs or not. So what are your predictions for the 2010 midterms? Because I have to say this, that I talked to uh, one of the most astute political pundits in the country last night, and he's very worried about Barack Obama winning a second term because of the power that, that the, the even these screwballs on the right are able to muster because they have this huge echo chamber in the media. It's true. They're able to cause a lot more damage to Barack Obama than they were to Bill Clinton, who they did uh, wound. And that has to do with the 24-hour news cycle and the megaphone of Fox News and right-wing radio and Christian radio, which has a lot of impact that I think the mainstream uh, media doesn't pay attention to. Um, so, so you're right. And I think in 2010 what they're doing is they're targeting those 35 blue dog seats uh, Rahm Emanuel essentially put up Repub moderate Republicans as Democrats, and uh, they're very vulnerable. Um, so the Republicans could take back districts that are inherently Republican. Um, but at the same time, in 2012, I really don't think there's any chance that they can defeat Barack Obama. Um, and the part of the problem is that if someone like Mitt Romney or Tim Pawlenty win the nomination, um, and these are the two viable candidates that I see who can campaign on an economic platform um, and really take the argument to Obama. The Christian right will sabotage them because they see them as cardboard men in suits who are not authentically true believers like Sarah Palin. And they'll have to nominate a vice president who will uh, be a liability like Palin. So that's, that's the way I see it. And, you know, I hope that in 2010 I'm proven wrong. Well, let me ask you this. You know, the, the Richard Hofstetter wrote a book called the, uh, the Paranoid Tradition of American History, right. American Politics. Um, and he points out that these kind of right-wing uh, millennialist authoritarians have always been part of the political landscape in our country. But they've never been able to get traction before because they couldn't get money from Wall Street. And they weren't taken seriously politically by the vast middle class of our country. Um, what suddenly changed in this? What suddenly, what was, the, what was the thing that's changed? Is it the erosion of the middle class? Is it the access to Wall Street money? What changed that allowed them to take over an entire political party for the first time in history? You know, there, there were so many factors, and I... I... I don't even think I present the complete picture in my book, but I think what happened, I was on uh, Ron Reagan's show on Air America, and he asked me what happened, and I said, your father happened. What Ronald Reagan did was he formed this alliance between the libertarians who brought in all the Wall Street money by promising them you know, supply-side economics, the neoconservatives, the, you know, the defense hawks, and the Christian right by telling the moral majority, I know you can't endorse me, but I endorse you and by, you know, installing them in posts in the Department of Education and elsewhere. And what's happened since then, um, and part of the problem the Republican Party faced, especially after the Terry Schiavo charade, was the libertarians have become alienated and the money to the Democratic Party. 
So if they can if they can find a candidate like Reagan who can create that triad of the three wings of the conservative movement and bring them back together again, um, they have a chance. But um, we've seen through polling data moderate Republicans just fleeing the Republican Party. Um, Didi Scozafava in New York 23rd New York's 23rd district was a classic libertarian Republican who was pro-choice and pro-gay, and look what they did to her. So they are sabotaging themselves through this Tea Party movement. Although um, their capacity to raise money um, may be, uh, you know, magnified through by mobilizing uh, fears of Barack Obama's socialism. But you're right. I mean, it's all about campaign finance, and the Christian right um, can only hold power if the Republicans are in power, and the Republicans can only hold power through corporate money. While other cable news programmers responded to the grim news out of Haiti by furnishing information on how viewers can help, right-wing religious broadcaster Pat Robertson used his 700 Club program to disparage earthquake victims in a way that could very possibly diminish emergency aid to the stricken nation. Robertson told viewers of his internationally syndicated show that Haiti has been visited by so much tragedy because it signed a deal with the devil 200 years ago. As Robertson put it, when Haiti was, quote, under the heel of the French, you know, Napoleon III and whatever, they got together and swore a pact with the devil. They said, we will serve you if you will get us free from the French. True story. And so the devil said, okay, it's a deal. And they kicked the French out. You know, the Haitians revolted and got themselves free. But ever since, they have been cursed by one thing after the other, close quote. Since Robertson's international audience reportedly runs into the millions, many of whom would normally donate to disaster relief, Robertson's words could cause some to close their purses rather than, you know, give aid to servants of the devil. Unsurprisingly, Robertson's history is also off the mark. The Haitian Revolution, which embraced the principles of the Enlightenment and the American Revolution, achieved victory in 1804 against Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon III would not come to power until 1848. We weren't expecting a treatise from Robertson about how Haiti, with the help of the French and the U.S., has become one of the world's poorest nations. But just imagine how sick someone has to be to respond to news of wide-scale death and destruction by saying, in effect, well, they got what they signed up for. But we don't have to imagine we've got Pat Robertson. The scientists reported that there ain't no purpose And the theologian told me that it's all been designed And now I'm trying to maintain objectivity The world wants to illuminate what really matters And I'm in a perfect mortal meaning extractor Processing the complexity Born of the earth We were given a job
Robertson has gotten into the act here, and he's going to have a couple comments about uh, Nidal Malik Hassan, the Fort Hood shooter, and this ought to be ugly. So let's check it out. Clip number nine. Even the co-founder of the Islamic community near Fort Hood told Hassan, quote, there's something wrong with you. Meanwhile, Pat, the Army Chief of Staff, says he doesn't want a backlash against other Muslim soldiers because of Hassan's actions. Um, worry about backlash, but the truth is this guy was off his trolley and they should have gotten him out, but nobody wanted to go after him because of political correctness. We just don't talk about somebody's, quote, religion, even if the religion involves beheading infidels and pouring boiling oil down their throats. But he wasn't hiding it. It was a horrible chapter, but if we don't stop covering up what Islam is, Islam is a violent, I would say religion, but it's not a religion, it's a political system. It's a violent political system bent on the overthrow of the governments of the world and, the, and, and world domination. That is the ultimate aim. And uh, they talk about infidels and all this, but the truth is, that's what the game is. So you're dealing with a, not a religion, you're dealing with a political system. And I think we should treat it as such and treat its adherents as such as we would members of the Communist Party or members of some fascist group. Yeah, keep it classy, Pat. I, I like that. So all Muslims, according to him, we're, it's not a religion, it's a political movement, uh, are, we should treat them like they're communists or fascists. So uh, the millions of Muslims in the country, Muslim Americans in the country, well, uh, Pat Robertson thinks that you're the equivalent of communists or fascists, take your pick, either side, and that we should treat you as such. Now, who died and left Pat Robertson king of America? Uh, who, why does he get to decide who's more American and who's not? And who's a communist and who's a fascist and which religions uh, we should treat differently? How about I uh, say to you, Mr. Pat Robertson, you are a fundamentalist Christian. You're a danger to this country. You believe in uh, a cult that is a dangerous and violent cult. In fact, the cult of Christianity historically has been the single most violent religion on the face of the earth. Indisputable. Uh, the Crusades where they killed uh, thousands upon thousands. The Inquisition where they stretched people on Iraq. They did torture for an endless number of years. The witch hunts where you uh, boiled witches alive and, and drowned them and hung them and uh, let alone Christians that started things like, uh, I don't know, World War I and World War II and the Holocaust, and I could go on and on. The wholesale genocide of the Native Americans, um, the slavery of Africans in this country. You want to keep going about your violent religion, Mr. Pat Robertson? You know what? I don't think you're quite as American as I am. And I've got to do some sort of, I don't know, there's got to be some sort of test for fundamentalist Christians to prove they're really Americans. Because they seem to be part of a political system akin to communism or fascism. And that we need to, as Pat Robertson just said, we need to take, uh, have a serious discussion about religion. He said we should get into people's religion. Well, I'm in your religion, Pat Robertson. I'm in your face, okay? Your religion is probably, the, it, it, look, as far as I can tell, historically speaking, it seems almost impossible to argue with. Religion, uh, Christianity has been, been by far the most violent religion on the face of the earth in the history of the world. So I can't really trust any of your Christian Americans. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put convene. I, I, I'm going to time to put political correctness aside. I, I'm with you, Pat. 
So I'm going to convene a little committee to decide if Christians get to be in the um, U.S. military anymore. Because you guys aren't quite as American as we are, you know, and you've got this violent uh, religious cult that you're a part of. So, uh, you know, the, obviously the government has to look out for you. So, hey, Pat, why don't we have, do a little commission uh, where we consider whether we should keep Christians out of the government, out of the military, um, maybe even out of business. I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll have to decide how that goes. Because they're not really Americans, these uh, Christians. Oh, what, you don't like it when it's about your religion? Oh, you just like to slander other religions and pretend that they're not as American as you are. But when it comes to you, all of a sudden you're offended, right? Oh, how dare I ever, ever talk about Christianity? No, but any smearing of Muslims because of one action of one Muslim or a couple of Muslims and that you smear a billion people with it. Uh, how about Tim McVeigh? Fundamentalist Christian. How about Scott Roeder, fundamentalist Christian that killed Dr. Tiller? How about uh, uh, Nichols, Terry Nichols, also another Christian, white Christian that did the Oklahoma City bombing along with Tim McVeigh? How about uh, Eric Rudolph, the Atlanta bomber, uh, who's another fundamentalist white Christian? And I can go on and on all day long with you folks. We got to watch you. We can't really trust you. You're not quite as American as the rest of us. Now, okay, in case any of you are taking my comments seriously, obviously Pat Robertson had his, has his head up his ass. And you can't say that Christians should be in a different category and that you don't like their religion, so they are akin to communists or fascists. But just as obviously, you can't do that to Muslims or Jews or Buddhists or Hindus. We're all Americans. And if you don't understand that, Pat Robertson, you don't understand what the country's about, which I'm not surprised by, because you're a goddamn clown. So you want to come for me? I'll come for you. How you like me now? Thanks for listening, everyone. I wanted to cover just a couple of topics today. Uh, first of all, I wanted to respond to some old emails that came in a long time ago when Air America went down the tubes and people wrote to me asking, you know, first of all, what's this going to mean for the podcast? But and, and then more specifically for shows like Ring of Fire, where can we get Ring of Fire now? And so I checked it out for myself and and it seems like they were in a little bit of a limbo for a while and so i want to announce to all of you now if you haven't checked it out for yourself uh ring of fire has actually relaunched their website um and you know just to be clear we we heard from ring of fire today that was with robert f kennedy jr interviewing max blumenthal in uh, in a couple of clips in this show so so that's that's the ring of fire show and they have actually now relaunched their website and, and relaunched a new podcasting program. So part of their income now is is geared towards um, you know signing up members to uh, to to download the podcast for pay, basically. So if you're a fan of the uh, so if you're a fan of Ring of Fire and and you like to get their podcast, that's how it's done these days. So since I like that show, I certainly encourage you to check that out at ringoffireradio.com. Secondly, just to quickly touch on uh, today's topic for the show, uh, for, for the, all of the people who have been uh, kind of chomping at the bit for a new episode on religion, uh, you're welcome. 
And for all of you who love the podcast but hate the episodes on religion, uh, well, sorry about that. But you, you do get a, a consolation prize. And so a, a lot of you have probably already noticed that for a while now, I've been labeling each episode that comes out with the topic of what it's going to be about right in the title of the show. And it turns out that that was a good idea anyways. It's a nice, convenient thing to have. It's an easy way to find what you're looking for if you want to go back in the archives or whatever. But, um, but that idea actually came up specifically because of the shows on religion. And so that was just one more way, you know, kind of in the same way that I break the show up into chapters so that you can easily skip around uh, within the show and, and skip parts you don't like. I thought it would be a good idea to label the religion shows for all the people who, um, who you know, who like the podcast in general, but find the religion shows not to their liking, to say the least. Um, and so I just started labeling them so that when a religion show would come up, then you would be able to see it. And, uh, and if you want to skip it, skip it and, uh, and no hard feelings at all. Now, I just want to thank a couple of members because, of course, they're the ones who uh, make this show possible. So Susan H. signed up back in uh, December, signed up for a full year membership on December 2nd. Awesome, Susan. And, uh, and then Tim B. signed up just recently on February 21st and, uh, and also signed up for a full year in advance. Um, so huge help from a couple of great uh, relatively new members uh, signed up for a full year these members and all the members and and anyone who wants to drop you know a dollar or five dollars in the in the donation bin uh, makes a huge difference and and frankly makes this show possible in its current form. I mean, this show existed before I got to do it as a full time job, but just barely. You know, nothing like ten episodes a month, and and you know I think I I'm hoping the quality is going up and and the consistency and all of those things. So. Uh, the, the, the people who support the show uh, make it what it is. So that'll be it for today. Of course, besides memberships and donations, there are lots of ways to support the show. I, I hope you'll check that out on the website in the support box. Lots of things that don't cost any money at all that, that help spread the word of the show. And, and, you know, of course, including just spreading the word yourselves. Uh, you know, I'd love it if you set a goal of telling five friends about the show. It would make a huge, huge difference if everyone would do that. Um, of course, my opinion is if you, if you're going to tell five friends, you might as well tell everyone you meet, but you know, but that's just me for more details on the show. Of course, you can stay tuned between episodes on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, links to both of those are on the website, of course, and details on each show individually. Uh, of course, links to all the sources and all the music used is going to be in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from as far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. as I can get, my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you ten times a month now, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black blinds black and white You took a part in picture that wasn't right Bitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you wanna meet